welcome to episode 465 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. Grace Winburn. In today's episode, we will be ranking the definitive top 10 list of 2023. Is Everybody um, else is wrong. Yeah, because, you know, we, right. we were talking just before this, you know, everybody's following, you know, releases in New York and L.A. and Chicago. Tiff. We're a podcast of the people. We show we talk about movies that people have access to because we're the accessible podcast. Yeah. So screw you, film comment. You don't speak for the people. Also, Jesus. go look at our TIFF coverage, which will hopefully be out when this podcast is live. Yeah, you can also look at that. But that's <laughs> but you know that's the people's that's the people's festival. I don't know. Y'all hold off for the TIFF coverage so far because you want for those the movies people. to get out to the people. <laughs> that's right. Is it out of sh- is it out of sheer forgetfulness? No. No. It's for the people. <laughs> and with your vote, I will you know I would be happy to be your next president, Zach 2024. Um subscribe on Patreon. Yeah, subscribe on Patreon. The twenty thousand dollar a month tier. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. If you subscribe for that, I will run for president. <laughs> All right, well, let's get it kicked off with number 10. And Michael, I'm gonna hand it over to you. Yeah, so number 10 is Godzilla minus one, which um, we talked about on the podcast a couple weeks ago. I mean, we've talked about, I think, all of these movies on the podcast at one point or another. Um, But uh, so this is the new Godzilla movie. Um, I still don't know why it's called minus one. However, (laughs) um, for those who don't know. Does that mean it's our number nine? Uh, oh, I don't know how the math works there. Like, um, That's you got to do the order of operations and everything. You know, it's it gets complicated, man. Um. Anyway, um, for those who don't know, and I include my father in this, who thought I was joking when I said the new Godzilla movie is really good and you should see it. Um. Uh. This is the new Godzilla movie, uh, which basically exists parallel to any other Godzilla movie like it it acts as if it's the only Godzilla movie um at the beginning of the movie you have this man who's a would-be kamikaze pilot who decides not to fly his plane into a boat um and instead pretends that his plane is broken and in the course of it uh, gets introduced to Godzilla who raids the base that he's on um and then he makes it back to Tokyo after escaping with his life and um godzilla goes for tokyo then um and as they're rebuilding tokyo they got to deal with godzilla coming to after the americans have already you know screwed up all their stuff um and who's the real godzilla there who's the real godzilla in this movie uh it is uh japanese imperialism um because yeah. the whole movie ends up being about how messed up it is that the japanese government during world war ii and the lead up to it basically considered its citizens expendable um and the main character has to like come to grips with the fact that it's okay that he didn't, uh, you know, finish his mission as a kamikaze pilot. Um, and it's really good. Um, I don't remember how much of this I'm going to repeat from when we talked about it before, but um, I feel like every Godzilla movie recently has has made a point of talking about like, wow, it really focuses on the humans this time. Uh, and this really does. Like, it's a... Um, fairly straightforward like character piece about this um, pilot rebuilding his life after World War II. And um, he uh, really, you know, goes through some like, you know, emotionally fraught territory. Um, and in uh, the process of that, uh, helps save Tokyo from Godzilla. And 
I don't think there's anything more that you could want from like a, a, a kaiju movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have like a really solid, not like groundbreaking, but like very well executed human plot um, that moves the characters in a coherent and uh, moving way. And you have really exciting action surrounding Godzilla. Um, and Godzilla looks awesome in this. Um, Godzilla looks like a kind of CGI updated version of like the monster suit Godzilla's. You know, it's not really trying to make him look like a dinosaur so much as he's trying to look, it's trying to look like Godzilla from like the 50s. Um, mm-hmm. But with the accoutrements that CGI can lend it. Um, and um, it's worth mentioning that this was produced by. Uh... I think it's Toto or uh, Toro. It's the production company that did the original Toho. Godzilla. Toho. Toho. It's Toho and also um, Robot Communications, which I'm entirely unfamiliar with, uh, yeah. but it's also a Japanese production company. But just cool, like Toho was the one that made the original movie. So coming back around. Yeah. I do want to point out one thing that's especially noteworthy about this movie is uh, Takashi Yamasaki is the director, but he is also the writer and he is also the visual effects coordinator. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a combination that you don't see that often, but truly pays off in this movie. This movie had a budget of Wikipedia says less than $15 million. Um, and that's astounding to me. Like this movie looks better than like the effects in this movie look better than any Marvel movie that has ever existed. Um, and it looks better than a considerable number of other like fairly expensive American effects driven movies this year. Uh, and I think that a big chunk of that has to do with just that alignment of writer, director, um, visual effects person. Um, uh, just because I don't, it's, it's like all in sync. Um, and it's, it's a movie that's really smart about how it deploys its effects as well. Um, because a lot of it, because it is like a human centric movie does focus on like the human level stuff. And so, like there are some sequences, like for instance, there's a sequence where Godzilla does his like nuclear blast on like this neighborhood in Tokyo, um, and most of that sequence is focused on the humans, um, and there's only a few effect shots in it. Um, but in the context of how the movie is structured, like with the directors, um, you know, the edits that were chosen and the shots that were chosen, it feels like this monumental moment despite the fact that godzilla really isn't in the screen on the screen that much um i don't know like it's just a really good movie um we talked about this on the podcast but like it kind of puts puts uh like most of the american like big budget movies to shame in the sense of like it does everything well that like american movies did poorly this year like having moving character development having convincing effects having really exciting action and like uh, I don't know. It just it, it, it kind of rocks. Um, has everyone yeah. else seen it? I yeah. have not seen it. I plan. Oh to. my gosh! Yeah, y'all got to go see it. I um, only just saw Godzilla, like the original, like last month. So I'm catching. You up. don't even have to see that because this movie pretends like it doesn't exist. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like completely unconnected with any other Godzilla movie in terms of anything. Yeah, a couple of things out of that. Yeah, one. Um, it's kind of it's been weird trying to sell this movie to people because yeah you you kind of go it just does everything that you would want like out of a like blockbuster action movie to do like it's just like there's nothing remarkable about it to at least i'm like it's it's just the story's fine you kind of know where it's going but like it's just like a very enjoyable action movie like i have not talked to a single person who has seen this movie and had anything negative to say about it and yeah like like it's i count like my brother-in-law 
and like um like coworkers and things like mm -hmm. that like people who aren't like movie buff people like people who wouldn't normally go see like a subtitled like japanese film like have been fans of this movie like it's extremely approachable and accessible yeah. and like just really just like hits all the notes that you would just, want it to hit it's just like a good yeah it's just like a good action movie and i think i think it's the been people's like people's movie yeah yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, as somebody who has not seen it, uh, but I have seen Hideaki Anno's Shin Godzilla from several years ago. Uh, parts of this conversation do feel like an echo of what people said when that movie came out. But um, Anno's definitely um, doing something a bit more like unconventional and um, like, you know, difficult to parse i guess on first glance uh, whereas this seems like like it's trying to do just kind of a crowd pleasing there are zero things that are difficult to parse about this movie yeah, um it's, it's very dry. straightforward i've not seen shin godzilla but mm, it's um, great you should watch it having been familiar with uh like some of the other dudes stuff um or that some of that dude's other stuff like it's not really in the same conversation but it's a good godzilla movie so um, the other thing I wanted to say was I think this is like just the reception of this has been kind of indicative of a if I read uh, the New York Times had an article a couple days ago looking at like the state of superhero mu movies after this year, especially specifically Marvel, because Marvel just had like a really rough year. In Dude, Disney in general, let us rejoice that Disney has cratered yeah. this year, like hardcore yeah. cratered. Do we have numbers on this? How how much? Dude, also the same at the same time as uh, Steamboat Willie entering the public domain. Let's all mm -hmm. uh, let's all celebrate. No, um, Wish is like one of their biggest financial catastrophes of all time. Um, yeah. wow. The new Indiana Jones movie is one of the biggest flops uh, in recent memory. Um, they had another really big... Like, well, you look at Marvel. The Marvel, the Marvel. Mean, Gar yeah. Guardians. Well, Guardians 3 was probably their, you know, was like the highest grossing one, but it wasn't like in like the records or anything. I mean, uh, Quan uh, the Ant-Man movie did nothing. And then the, the Marvels, the one that just came out a couple months ago, was their... It was the lowest box office in Marvel history. Yeah, like historic failure. It's let you know, one would hope that they would learn the right lessons from all of this and start making good movies. Uh I, I doubt that will happen, but maybe uh maybe they'll just cool it just they'll just buy a bigger market share. Yeah. No, it's just, but it's just like it's kind of cool. Like this movie, this movie shows like you don't really have to you don't have to have like six movies leading up to this big movie or and like a TV a, show. Yeah, it doesn't have to be three hours long. It doesn't have to be but Like it's very. This movie's very simple. Yeah, that's another thing I want to point out. This movie is two hours almost exactly, Boom. and you're that's in your all. Out. That's all you need. Like, yeah. If you have not seen Godzilla minus one and it's still playing near you, check it out. It's worth. And if you it's... know why it's called minus one, please tell me somebody. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> Drop in the comments below, as they say. <laughs> um. All right, Michael, we're staying on you for number nine. Yeah, um, so speaking of movies that did well at the box office on a fairly modest budget, um, otherwise I have no other transition, um, but uh, the new M. Night Shyamalan movie, uh, which uh, came out in uh, January, I believe. Yeah. yeah, it was one of those January movies, which M. Night Shyamalan has really like found his niche in January, and I'm, I'm mm -hmm. here for it. Um, anyway, uh, Knock at the Cabin. Um, it's great. I think I probably your number one movie of the year. Michael? No, this ended up being my number three. But for okay. most of this year, this was my number one movie. And I rewatched it today, uh, worried that I would have to like kind of eat crow a little bit and be like, oh, I overrated it. But I did not. This movie <laughs> is great. 
Like I, I would confidently place this movie against like any of M. Night Shyamalan's like really famous good movies like Signs or Unbreakable or mm -hmm. The Sixth Sense. You know, like those movies that everyone likes that M. Night Shyamalan did. It's I think this, yeah. this is, this is like up there with them. And unlike those movies, um, this movie is very, very dark and difficult to parse like what it is doing. Um, what happens is, and you've probably, if you've seen the trailers, which were all over the place in January, because there were no other, it was like this and Megan were coming out. Um, <laughs> shout out to Megan, by the way, also good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Basically, uh, this couple and their daughter are taking a vacation at this cabin, and um, uh, these four people come up who are, it's worth mentioning who the, um, who the uh, actors are here, because it's just an incredible um, melange of actors. Uh, you have uh, Dave Batista, Rupert Grint, aka Ron Weasley. Um, you have Abby Quinn. Um, and then you have, um, let's see, who's the fourth person? Oh, um, I'm not actually familiar with this, this actor, uh, or actress, but it's a Nikki Amuka bird. Um, whatever the case, they arrive and tell this couple that the end of the world is coming. And one of you has to voluntarily die to avert the end of the world. Um, and for most of the movie, you're like, are they kidding or are they not? Or not, not are they kidding, but are they, um, are these people delusional that it comes out that they met in like chat rooms and there's kind of like this subtext. Um, one of the characters was like a former, I guess not so former, but like a, basically created a hate crime, um, committed a hate crime against um, one of the, the couples who, who are gay. It's the same sex couple. Um, it's two men. Um, and so like, it was like a homophobic hate crime um, that one of these people who is now coming and saying, one of you guys has to die. Um, has committed. Um, so the movie is kind of this tense, like single location thriller where they have, uh, it's like a home invasion sort of thing, except it's not, it's not really the cat and mouse thing that a lot of home invasions are like at the very beginning of the movie, they tied the two parents in the chair uh, into chairs. And that's where they stay most of the movie. And a lot of the movie is these dialogues between the four people and then the people in the, who the parents who are tied up and the daughter. Um, like basically saying like, you know, why would you do this? Like, why do you think that the world's going to end? And then things happening that like um, increasingly muddy the waters as to um, who is actually knows what's going on here. Um, and it eventually becomes very clear what is happening. Um, and it would be spoilery, I guess, to get into that. Cause a lot of the movie's tension is built on like how much of this is actually real um in terms of like the apocalypse and all that um but what eventually comes out of it is like this very ambiguous film that has to do with um like a lot of m, m. night Shyamalan movies has to do with faith um has to do with like what is it like what is the goal of sacrifice um what is the nature of caring for someone else um and if you dying causes pain for someone else but saves other people is that um a worthwhile sacrifice to make um there's a lot of really interesting like um almost academic work um that i've seen on this movie about like whether or not this movie advocates for like the assimilation of queerness into like um mainstream american society um uh because like basically like um 
you would have to kill off one of the one of the men in this relationship in order for their family to um, survive. Um, and so is this movie arguing for, or is this movie saying that like to survive as a gay couple, you have to essentially kill your queerness? Um, is this movie um, engaging with like, kind of like this modern, like um, apocalyptic evangelicalism that you see in like American society, you know, that is like, you know, really like convinced that the end of the world is coming. And like, I mean, I'm not sure I had no idea that, um, the, um, you know, uh, conflicts in, uh, an occupation of, uh, Palestine would escalate, um, you know, several months after this movie and cause evangelicals to go into like a even more apocalyptic fervor. But, um, it does feel like it's at least in conversation with that kind of mindset. Um, but also you have like Dave Batista and, um, uh, a couple of the other characters who are presenting themselves as like kind, almost liberal people um, where they, they want to get to know people. They want like the people that who, who they're capturing, they introduce themselves. Like Dave Batista is like, I'm a second grade teacher and I run an after school program. Like as he's like <laughs> wielding an ax in front of um, these folks. And there is something also like kind of very strange about like, and, and kind of like evocative about how this movie um, positions them like these like home invaders are presented as like nice liberals um, except for one of them which is like you know you're kind of like arch like conservative like hate hateful dude um, and I don't know like this this movie just like I've watched it twice now and both times that like you watch it or I've watched it and it just opened up in weird ways to me and ways that are very sorry those are my kids ways <laughs> they're also really... big they're big knock at the cabin fans. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't take your kids to this movie, but um, you could take them to the beach that makes you old, and they would. Yeah, make then them, you could make take them, them age the up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I will say that like, um, M Night Shyamalan has made a lot of bad movies, but like he's he's been kind of on a roll recently for movies that even if they're bad are like fascinating, like like Glass, uh, and then Old, and then this. Like that's a, like a really fascinating run of movies that are like really ambitious and really strange and really like in some ways like hard to get a get a thing like a handle on what is he trying to do. But like the more that you kind of poke at these movies, the more they kind of open up for interesting things and interesting ideas. And I I just think this movie is great. Like I may have single handedly put this movie on the um at number nine here because i think it was well, my number three of the year he's, but he's not he's not here but reed also had this <sighs> not as high as i thought though he had it at number five um well like so. i said until i saw the 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 movies that i put on number one and two which we'll talk about later this podcast this was my number one of the year and like revisiting it like i'm confident in that like i think this is a great movie and like a a movie that is difficult in ways that a lot of movies are not like it's really rare to get a movie that is like this obviously trying to engage with like difficult cultural material and for it to feel this opaque. Um, and it's not, it also doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like wishy-washy. It doesn't feel like M. Night Shyamalan doesn't know what he's doing. What it feels like is a movie that is like genuinely difficult and not in like a narrative way. Like this is a very straightforward narrative, but like difficult in terms of themes. Like you, it, it really is, uh, a movie that you have to wrestle with if you're trying to figure out like what is going on in terms of 
themes here. And I, I really appreciate that. That's like super rare um, that a movie like that will come out. And also in this kind of bizarre, like home invasion package. Mm -hmm. And even know. if you don't want to engage with it on that thematic level, it also just works as a thriller too. It rocks. Like Emma Shyamalan is like cooking in this movie <laughs> and it's all in this like one room, basically. Like it's yeah. a single location thriller that like yeah. that, that goes just like, like them, like lining up outside. Like you had like this kind of the grass outside and like in front of the cabin and like them lining up. It's like, he, you know, he still knows how to get some good horror out of it too. The just weapons. Like, those were just like, horrific. Oh my gosh. Yeah. These like medieval looking weapons that they well, have. Well, like I just think of the first time that Dave Batista, like, you know, interacts with the daughter and just like, cause like Dave Batista is so good in the movie. Cause he's just yeah. so like, large like he's just a very big man he's huge yeah and like but then like his character is so like kind of like soft yeah and, and very he's quiet. a second grade teacher yeah he's it's been just, like uh it's wonderful. recruited to murder someone to avert the apocalypse apparently so yeah it's such a it's such a he's so good in that movie um he really is like i I don't know when the like Dave Batista like wins an Oscar push will happen and it will inevitably happen for a movie that's not as interesting as this movie but he's doing like Oscar level material here I think. Yeah. Yeah, I th I think that they kind of somebody needs to make a project for him cuz yeah, he's he, like he's shown that he can like lead action uh action movies like honestly like I I enjoyed him in Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead movie um you know, he's done like the Marvel stuff. He's been, you know, he has like the little small part in like Dune and James Bond and stuff like that. But like, I don't know. Like, yeah, give this dude a movie. Let him win an Oscar. Yeah, he should win an Oscar for this one. He's really good. Like, he's got this like sense of like great sadness and regret throughout the whole thing. Like, which is like a really interesting wrinkle of like, you know, he's not, he's someone who is fully convinced of something that he doesn't want to be true the whole mm -hmm. movie. And that yeah. is just a really interesting and and complex thing for him to play and he yeah. does it well yeah. circling back around to Shyamalan finding his niche in january movies um it is unfortunate that his next movie is not a january release i would love to go see a wait what's his next like a week next, uh, it's uh, called trap it is a thriller that is set at a concert apparently. hell yeah i'm That's there all we know about it I'm there. When is it happening? August. August. That's yeah. that's the January of the later part of the year. Though. <laughs> <laughs> the January of the academic year. Let's that's go right. ahead. And, let's go ahead and lock trap in as Michael's like one of the top five movies for next year. <laughs> I'm in. Like I, I'm, I'm on this train wherever it goes. Yeah. Um, I just made the list. This was really good. I saw it after you guys talked about it so much on the podcast earlier in the year, and for me, the big takeaway was. All, like all of our suffering is linked. Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, as much as we want to shut our eyes to the suffering of other people and focus on what is happening in front of us, the tension that they have there in the house. And then when they turn on the news and they see what's going on in the rest of the world, we can't worry about that. We have to worry about what's happening here, but the two are linked. So as much as our suffering is linked in this, so is our love and how, that is like the big saving power. That was my big takeaway. I don't have, yeah, you know, much. I saw today, I was kind of like a trawling letterbox to see like good takes on this movie because it's like a movie that I want to see good takes on. And I saw one that was really interesting where um, someone was saying that this movie is kind of showing the like inherent individualism of 
the family unit as like the only people you're responsible for. Mm. Um, and that the world, the world, if everyone in the world simply works on like the only people that I care about are the family people in my immediate family, then the world cannot survive. Um, and I think that's a really like, um, that's a kind of difficult reading of the movie given what eventually happens in the movie. And I don't know how well that would sit with people, but that's like a really interesting thing to take out of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know. You know, a director has never had a movie featured on an episode of Cinematary? M. Night Shyamalan? M. Night Shyamalan. Dang it. Give him the ideas. Let's give me ideas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 2024. Hmm. Foreshadowing. <laughs> well, he, he, he did get a whole video essay. He got a video essay. You can go watch my video like, essay. God, M. Night, what else do you want, man? <laughs> um. All right. Yeah. If you have not seen um, Knock at the Cabin, it's on Prime. It's on Amazon and... Prime now. It was on Peacock earlier this year, but I don't mm -hmm. think it's there anymore. But uh, yeah, it's available. Um, all right, Grace, number eight. Sure. Um, so that knock at the cabin being uh, Michael's number one for a long time. Uh, number eight on this list was also my number one, Asteroid City, directed by Wes Anderson, starring Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Brian Cranston, Adrian Brody, Jeffrey Wright. Everybody, everyone. Yeah, I was going to say, just say absolutely everybody. Everyone, the whole cast of players and Anderson's repertory theater, everybody. Um, Margot Robbie's in it. Margot Robbie, including like a few newcomers, Margot Robbie, uh, Steve Carell. Her best acting of the year. You, yeah, no. I, you That's know. pretty hot for she's, like three minutes of screen time. She's really she's good. She's fabulous. Um, this movie, um, a widower and his family travel to a small desert town for a junior stargazers convention. Uh, when the family becomes stranded and the town isolated after the briefest of encounters of a third kind, uh, the family, townsfolk, and wayward travelers must find a way to cope with these life-changing events. But that's not even the main plot. This is such a layered movie, um, and, it, and it took and it took a long time for me to sort of tease it all out and re like figure out. How many times have you watched it? Really? I yeah. see. I, I just watched it, rewatched it recently, and the second time helps like clear, clear the, clear it out for me. Clear it out. I just had one watch, um, a few uh, listens to some other film podcasts as well as some reading, and just some own um, independent thought on my own. But I realized that um, this is a, this more about the um, life, the creation inception to um, production of the teleplay Asteroid City. Um, so it's broken up. The, the timeline is a little funky, but you realize that all of these things, while they happened in order, it's all still happening at the same time as the story is being told. Um, we watch as um, the idea for the story comes to life um, from Edward Norton's character um, to the um, staging adaptation with Adrian Brody's directorial director um, character to the actual play itself, which is in color. Um, and then also we're taken out of it back and forth um, to watch the drama of um, Scarlett Johansson's like second character where she's leaving the staging, she's leaving the production and um, 
Jason Schwartzman's character leaving the production at its climax, wondering, am I doing it right? Is this right? Um, so if, and I got to thinking that if this were just a straightforward, you know, beginning, middle, end of getting this play up on its legs and on TV, I feel like we've, we've, we've seen, I feel like we've seen that before in a few other movies, um, you know, and like, do the wheels fall off this play? How do we get them back on and how do we get it back on track? I think that this is a much more, um, interesting way and a much more complex way to tell this story. Um, Anderson has really been playing with uh, his methods, um, with um, telling these stories, these sort of frame narratives. But I am such a big Anderson, Andersonian, Andersonite. I He preaches the gospel to me and he has since I was a young, impressionable teenage girl. Um, I I put him as number one for me because I will always just defend him and his work. I think that uh, folks find his style, his aesthetic um, trite and overdone. And especially since people feel like they can just replicate it on their own with TikTok and AI art, they feel like this isn't anything special. We've seen this before, but it's still special. I mean, sure, the sure it looks like an Anderson film and yes, I would have loved to have lived a little bit longer in asteroid city. Um, this is clever and this is a uh, much more, uh, dramatic, um, some, and, and he makes very dramatic moody movies meditating on life and death and grief and loss. And how do you cope with the life changing, the earth shattering, um, and they are all very dramatic and they're all very kind of depressing, but they're pretty and they're bright. So I think um, this is uh, much more um, con uh, contemplative. That's how you say it, right? Con contemplative. Yeah. Um, then, um, thank you. Yes, A plus. Um, then, uh, then, then people really give it credit for. Um, so, so I, with all of that to say, I loved it. I'm so glad that this made the list. Number eight is, uh, eight is great, <laughs> you know, as good as it gets. And um, definitely. Question, question for the Andersonite. Sure. Um, did you see all of his little role doll short films? I hadn't yet because um, I feel like Ooh. I told, as I told you guys, um, I, uh, Netflix and its infinite wisdom and mm. like, password sharing. I'm kicked off and I can't log back in. Gotcha. And it's like, you're, you're not allowed you enough. So I didn't miss that one, but <laughs> I did see this and I've, and I've got um, so many of his other, yeah. Come yeah. On. The, re the reason I ask is that um, I didn't put any of the 2023 Wes Anderson joints on my list, but if I did, I would have put the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. Yeah, I think if his Netflix stuff had been packaged as an anthology, it would have been on my list for sure. Yeah, that stuff's really good. I think you, Grace, you mentioned like something that's kind of interesting uh, to me about like the most like the last few Wes Anderson movies, including the Netflix stuff in Asteroid City, which is that like a lot of people have started viewing his style as trite and like anyone can do it and AI have done it. And I feel like the last few Wes Anderson movies, particularly uh, the French Dispatch and then Asteroid City and then the Netflix stuff is kind of Wes Anderson like laying down the gauntlet and saying no. 
nobody can, can do it like me. Like these are these are like so incredibly yeah. uh, meticulous movies. Even in a way that dwarfs even like you know the Grand Budapest Hotel or you know whatever other movies you would point to as like the Wes Anderson movies. Like he just seems like on a on a kick of like I am going to just burrow in as deep as I can into what I like to do, and I love that for him. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I rewatched this recently, and especially this one, I think French Dispatch a little bit also, um, and then the the shorts on Netflix. Like, I I I I'm a big fan of his style. This 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 movie especially is just so wound up. Like it's so like you said meticulous, but it's just, it's like almost like like a it's just so wound up to like hit the parts it needs to hit. And I think what works about this, and this was the case also, I feel like with some of his best you know like fantastic fantastic mr fox and grand budapest um where like it's so wound up and moving like in, in in a way that you can tell he's he's it's going the way he wants he's very he's fully in control but then like you know he gets this we, you know we were joking at the beginning like you get this cavalcade of actors you get everybody in the movie and like there's I don't feel like there's ever like an explicit like this is a sad moment or like, the, you know, like there's nothing in the movie that like stops the movie to kind of like have that moment of of like where they recognize what's, you know, like like I'm thinking of like Fantastic Mr. Fox when, you know, Mr. Fox and Mrs. Fox are like there in front of the waterfall and they're having that moment, which there's nothing wrong with that. But like you don't think the Margot Robbie moment is that in this movie? It's a little bit. Yeah. Um, but uh but there's just like these kind of small moments with different characters where they kind of it's like they break, you know, for just a little bit. Like they just have this kind of moment of sadness. And like I find that really interesting in 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 his work lately and especially this where it's like you have like this meticulous. It's almost like a like a um, model train that's just kind of going along the tracks. Um, but it always finds ways to like still it's not like it's inhuman. It's, it's, it's like a very human operation. Um, and then on the second viewing, I really, I really liked that. I found a lot more out of um, Tom Hanks's performance. He kind of has those moments where he, he catches you um, when you least expect it. He was tough. I, I really, mm-hmm. I, I like that version of like tough love that he gives. Everybody is um, kind of, a lot of these characters feel kind of pitiful um, or, I don't. It, it 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 was it was a depressing watch and 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 moody and um and I really just but also like forgiving of those human emotions um, when Jason Schwartzman breaks off and he's and he runs off to um, Adrian Brody's director uh, Schubert I think was his name Schubert Green and asks him Am I doing this right? Um, I that that scene and like then leading up into the Margot Robbie, that one kind of broke me. Um, an actor asking their director in the middle of the performance is, is this right? It's like us, you know, sort of talking, if you're religious, if you're faithful, talking to God, praying, am I, am I right? Am I doing this right? Looking for that um, absolution from your God, from your director. Um, needing that um 
reassurance and and he gives it to him yes you are doing it right and it also sort of felt like anderson even asking himself am i doing this right am i telling my story correctly and him assuring himself yes you again throwing down that gauntlet no no one else can do this like you mm-hmm. it just wonderful just yeah. heartbreaking i don't know I don't know if I necessarily endorse Adrian Brody as God, but, you know, we can workshop it. He could be my God. (laughs) Um, Well, Asteroid City, it's on uh, Amazon Prime now. So if you missed it, check it out. Um, But I'm going to try. This has been the Amazon Prime list. Yeah, it has been. (laughs) Can they put uh, Henry Sugars on Amazon Prime? I've got that. Can they put it on Amazon Prime? No, it's not. Yeah, it's there for sure. Speaking of God, Andrew's Andrew's Mm. got our number seven pick. There you go. There's the right. (laughs) How you make the big bucks. All right. Well, our our number seven pick of the best movies of 2023 is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Kelly Freeman Craig. Um, And I want to start talking about this movie by quoting Chantel Ackerman. Uh, who when oh, she yeah. was asked about who's also a fan of this movie? I'm, you know, from the grave. was alive. <laughs> I'm sure she would love. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Um, but when she was explaining why she chose to make her sight and sound award-winning number one best movie of all time, Jean Dillman, uh, like just about a woman doing chores, um, she said the film was a reaction to a quote hierarchy of images in cinema that places a car accident or a kiss higher in the hierarchy than washing up. And it's not by accident, but relates to the place of women in the social hierarchy. And I was thinking about that quote as I was putting together my my list of the top 10, my favorite movies of this year. And like I was comparing this one to some other more like kind of highbrow art movies that I'd watched this year, like St. Omer and The Zone of Interest in May, December, like all doing um, these really um, new challenging things with the form of cinema. But I ended up giving my number one movie of the year to Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Because it's like the movie that I just enjoyed the most this year. I watched it three times, um, once on a plane and then again on Christmas Eve with my mom. And like every time I watch this movie, I am just like filled with so much like warmth and joy and and like genuine human emotion. And, you know, despite the fact that, you know, this this movie um, has shown up on a lot of people's lists, I have seen it on, on a lot of like letterbox top tens, but it's usually placed pretty low. Um, because I think that it is kind of viewed as somewhat unremarkable, especially in um, a film landscape where we've had so many um, coming-of-age movies about young white girls, like Lady Bird and Booksmart and all these movies, right? Um, But I think that this movie is, um, like, as good as the best of those. And it is just, like, full of these very subtly perfect choices. It is not being particularly flashy or showy or in your face with the things that it's doing in order to convey whatever feeling it wants to convey. Um, but it is always doing something um, that is kind of um, manipulating the audience in kind of a perfect way. Like um, there's a scene where um, the characters are forced to play spin the bottle. And the first shot of this scene is just the bottle and it's like this you're you're kind of being confronted with this like really intimidating um image 
Uh, there's a sequence where she goes to visit her grandmother in New York and they, they go see the Broadway show Pirates of Penzance. And you're getting one of the big numbers from that show kind of like intercut with like her on her way there and her meeting her grandmother in the subway and or at the bus station. And it like creates this, this sense of like the entire memory of that visit is sort of suffused with um, the, like the, you know, the blast of euphoria that she got from seeing this Broadway show. And, um, you know, all the, the characters in the movie, they have subtly different music tastes. And so like the different needle drops are kind of reflecting what this character wants to listen to. Um, there's a, there's a moment where um, the main character is wrapping up a prayer um, and she says, thanks God to enter prayer. And then she, because she has to interrupt her prayer to say, thanks mom uh, to her mom, who's just done something for her, like very subtly kind of like asking the viewer to kind of draw a line in their brain between those two ideas. Um, it is just like a really smart, well-crafted um, movie. Um, it is uh, like this really also kind of honest reckoning with um, faith as a central choice in a young person's life. It is, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that doesn't really get um, discussed in a lot of uh, big Hollywood movies. You know, faith is something that that tends to only get touched upon by, you know, the faith-based film industry that is trying to be like evangelical and polemic. And this movie is not trying to do that. It is just kind of um, showing you the way in which um, a person might kind of try on different ideas and like internally grapple with the question of what they believe and with, with like the full weight and importance that that carries. Um, and on top of that, it's also um, a really beautiful humanist depiction of puberty um, as experienced by young girls specifically. This is kind of the feminist blockbuster that I think Barbie was trying to be. Um, and it has much more modest aims than Barbie. It's not trying to like take aim at like capital T, capital P, the patriarchy. It's just trying to kind of delve into the lived experience of women, um, both for, you know, young girls and also their mothers as well. Um, I really like um, Rachel McAdams' role in this movie, like the role itself and the performance. Um, the performance is incredible. There's a scene where Rachel McAdams is explaining to her daughter why they don't speak to um, her maternal grandparents. And um, like Rachel McAdams' patience in delivering that set of lines and her um, her willingness to just kind of stop dead at so many moments in in sharing that information to, to like stammer and say, um, and not know what to say is just perfect. It is, it is a type of, of humanist or like a, a real authentic human performance that I feel like I don't see enough in movies. Um, but also like just the choice to expand the role. Uh, I've actually not read the Judy Bloom uh, classic that this movie is adapted from, but my understanding is that it's kind of just the girl's story. Um, and this movie kind of like expands the mother's role so that you're kind of getting the mother and the daughter's plot lines running simultaneously and in parallel to one another. Um, and I think that it's really beautiful the way in which 
um, the movie kind of like forms all these really, um, you know, um, universal connections that between the, the experiences of these two different characters. Um, so are you there guys? Me, Margaret, beautiful movie. Um, feel like being underrated. Uh, this no, year. it is. Cause uh, like in like a just world, uh, Rachel McAdams would be getting a Oscar nomination. Cause it's absolutely, leg- it's legitimately yeah. one of the best yeah. performances of the year. Also, 100%. Kelly Freeman Craig, people might know from her only other big movie, um, Edge of 17. She did with Haley Seinfeld several years ago. Um, she should just kind of be able to make whatever she wants, I think. Like, yeah, why? Truly. Why and also, not a second Kelly Freeman Craig. That's exactly it. Like, we're, I, we should not have to wait years and years. You know, she needs. We as a society can't allow that to happen because <laughs> these I, movies are wonderful. Like they're they're wonderful and like movies that kind of like feel like that they slot easily into a genre, but like truly transcend. Um, yeah. I rewatched Edge of Seventeen with my wife Rebecca right before we saw Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and seeing those back to back like really reinforced to me like that she's like one of the preeminent like talents in like just making movies in America right now, like yeah. not, and, 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 but she's only made two of them in over the course of like 10 years. It's right. un, unjust. I am. I'm even though this movie probably didn't get the, the viewership it, it could have. I'm really glad though, that like it went into theaters and it wasn't like, you know, like Netflix didn't buy it or Hulu bought, it, you know, like something like that. Mm-hmm. It just gets like lost on those streaming services. So I, even though, even though like it didn't get seen probably as much as it should have, at least like she's getting to make movies in theaters rather than it just getting, you know, content dumped on Netflix and disappearing after a week. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, sure. I guess that's true. Um, I will say, um, I guess uh, that I also had this on my list, but it was, I think number six or seven. Uh, so sorry, Andrew. Part for, of the problem. Uh, yeah, I am part of the problem. <laughs> um, but that one particular scene that you're talking about, uh, talking about the grandparents and why they don't mm-hmm. see them anymore, like that was probably the best scene of the year. Like if I had to like mm. think about like movie moments, like that that one scene was really like a standout for me. Yeah, I can totally see that. All right. Well, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I don't think it's, is it streaming anywhere? Or is it rental right now? I think it's a rental. Yeah. Know. Yeah. It's worth right. a rental though. It is. Um, God, this movie lost money at the box office. That's so depressing. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't mm, do very well. Jeez. But, um, all right. Number six, this will wrap up the first part of this episode. Number six I got is the holdovers, which I rewatched earlier today. Um, this one I'm surprised honestly because Andrew and I caught it at TIFF and I figured it would do pretty well but it seems to have like kind of gone across the board as being like a lot of people have seen it you know and all enjoy it like it seems to be across the board favorite I had some random guy who like um, I I gave movies to at McKay Mm -hmm. Knoxville people know McKay's used books like I went to sell some stuff there and he just like randomly asked me if I had seen the holdovers and said it was his favorite movie. Of oh movie. my gosh. <laughs> the people's choice. The people's yeah, choice. Like people, <laughs> people, which is great. I'm like, I'm, I'm glad, uh, glad people have locked on. Um, but yeah, for those who are, who have not seen it yet, um, it takes place in the early, I think in 1970, 
Um, 70 to 71. Yeah, 1970. Uh, and it takes place in a New England boarding school. Um, it's Christmas. And so everybody's headed home for the holidays. But uh, some of the students uh, don't have anywhere to go. So they're, they're, the, they're the holdover students. They're, and they're stuck with uh, Paul Giamatti's character, which uh, is it Hunum. Yeah, it's Hunum. Paul Hunum. Uh, as well as Mary, who is the cafeteria worker. Um, and so it's kind of a silly reason why they get rid of most of the kids, except for the one, but most the, the rest of the kids leave. Um, it is kind and, of a great gag though. Like. It's a very, it's a, it's a really funny gag because it's just, it's just very random, but they, they, pre- so then it becomes uh, Angus, who is the, the lone student left. Uh, and then Paul Giamatti's character and divine joy Randolph's characters. And, um, yeah, this is like it came out. I think it came out a little before Thanksgiving, and but has started to come out like in rentals and streaming. It's on Peacock now. Um, the, over the last couple of weeks, real just a really. I wish it kind of almost came out a few weeks later. Like great Thanksgiving to mm-hmm. Christmas to New Year's area like holiday movie. Like I feel like it's one that's going to enter a lot of rotations for that. Which you know is you know is nice to break up the you know watchings of elf and christmas story and stuff like that like toss this in here for a little nihilist you know it's a little 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 melancholy and nihilism what are you gonna do um but yeah i remember i remember when we saw this at tiff paul giamatti that's he's another one like i i think he'll probably get nominated i feel like he might get nominated just because they're like yeah he's had a long career let's i don't think he's gonna win though and he's he's really good in this movie, just like genuinely, just like fantastic. You know, you were talking about the the scene with Rachel McAdams where she's talking about uh, why they don't see her, you know, the grandparents. Um, just a heartbreaking scene in this movie is when, um, and it just kills you, and it's all because of Giamatti's face in it. But um, when when they're at the party and he's like he's kind of flirting and, and feeling like he's getting somewhere with the with the host of the party who works as the assistant to the headmaster of the school, who you can tell he kind of has like a crush on. Um, and she's like, and they're like talking, they have really good conversations. She goes, Oh, hold on. Uh, I'll be right back and goes up. And he like, you know, looks behind him and sees her kissing this, uh, what, what we assume is her boyfriend. And like, he just turns back and he just has like this, it's not even like sadness or anger. It's just like this disappointment. And like, you can just read it all over his face. And it just, and, uh, Alexander Payne who directs the movie, um, just kind of holds it there and that just that look of disappointment is so um it's just it's just so heart-wrenching in, in, the, in that moment for somebody who you you can tell like this is a big deal that he's kind of trying to reach out to this other person um but i think i think overall like the movie it you know the movie definitely is leaning on um you know the the holidays aren't you know let's all let's all get together and hug and you know watch movies and mm-hmm. open press like it's not all happiness and like people have you know a lot of a lot of people have a tough time during the holidays mm-hmm. and like this is like one of the ideal like tough time during the holidays movies um because like there are it's you know it's very melancholy it's very sad you kind of get like this like wonderful melancholy snow in new england cat steven soundtrack thing going on and it's also like intermixed with like a kind of the somber christmas carols as well yeah and like it's in like there's like a comfort to that it's kind of like a it's kind of like a you know you've had a glass of mulled wine and you're just kind of sitting there in your feelings Mm -hmm. um 
but like you know i don't want to also sell it as like it's depressing because it's it's also not it's so goddamn funny it's so (laughs) fucking funny it's so funny all the time um in fact that that one scene that you're talking about being really depressing um where it's immediately uh, switched it's immediately switched because uh the the student is like hooking up with the some random girl in the basement and they're trying to get him to leave he's like i don't want to (laughs) leave i'm having fun i'll come back it's fine yeah yeah no it's 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 you know, it it marries a lot of the kind of like more somber notes with a lot of hilarious notes. Like Paul Giamatti is just fre- frequently insulting everybody. We've talked about it on the podcast, but when at one point he calls the headmaster of the school <laughs> penis cancer in human form, and that's the best <laughs> insult of all time. Actually, the full line is Hardy, I've known you since you were a child. So I can I feel like I can say with uh, you know expertise that you are penis cancer in human. <laughs> and you're just like, yeah, it's such a great burn. I actually had a after the second time I watched this, I made a little note in my phone's notes app of like all the incredible insults that get thrown around in this movie. One of which is snarling Visigoths. Yeah. <laughs> That's like right when they get back from the break and he walks in and he goes. He goes, good morning, you snarling Visigoths. Like, He's grading the Amazing. papers and calls them Philistines. Oh, my God. It's so endlessly insulting to us. The other team. funny scene in that movie, just to like, is because uh, on the rewatch, it was just cracking me up, is when they're at the bowling alley and he's sitting at the bar with the bartender and the guy dressed as Santa. And that like, so funny. And they're like complaining. Oh they're complaining about something they're like, yeah, it fucking sucks. And then like Paul Giamatti goes, hello, gentlemen. And like tells them like the origins of like why the Santa outfit that the guy's wearing is not like what Santa, you know, what St. Nicholas would have been wearing when he was alive. Like it's then he like takes a puff from his pipe and have like the most smug self-satisfied face yeah. in the fucking world. And it cuts back to them and they're just staring at him. <laughs> like they don't even yell at him. They just, they don't even know what to do with that. They're just like, okay. Um, yeah, no, it's a really funny movie. I, honestly. Yeah. Like it's one, I, I feel like it'll be hovering around award seasons, but like, I feel like this is like solidified itself as like a good holiday time rotation movie. Um, bang, like just incredible performances all around. Speaking of like, they should yeah. get more recognition. Divine Joy Randolph yeah. as Mary. They're honestly the second time watching. She's, she's even more fantastic because she's given the least on paper to do. Mm-hmm. Like she's kind of given a one note character. And but she like gives so much humanity and like just creates these moments for this character that like supersedes the like the kind of soft writing I feel like on her acting a lot with her face. Yeah, she's really good. Also, does the uh, do the opening credits of this movie say introducing Dominic Sessa? Yeah, this is his first uh, film role, which is incredible. What an incredible find! This that kid is very good in this movie for making our like dream oscar uh ballots i yeah. think he he deserves to be in the conversation for sure but yeah i don't know any it, grace i know you watched this for the first time today any thoughts on the holdovers um tender endlessly heartbreaking um i teared up a bunch but i never fully let loose the tears because it was so funny um i love the lessons everyone teaches each other schools in session even over the holiday break 
Um, but it's the school of hard knocks and it's the school of life. And <laughs> what I, is he, I, he's talking about like making them run or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then they have study time too. They they actually have to crack the books. They crack the books. I mean, they enrich, they, their relationships enrich each other and enrich each other's lives. And that was so, and I, and I thought that that was so powerful. Um, the friendship that they make, um, I loved the marrying, like when um, Paul Giamatti's character is watching um, Angus uh, ice skate and how free and childlike this boy gets to be after or before experience or like it's so freeing from the um, endless barrage of bullying and, and bullshit at the school that he has to put up with. And he sort of sees himself in him and, and that's why he saves him. Um, this was like, before I watched this, I was a little concerned that this was going to be like sort of breakfast clubby with like the holdovers. And like we did get, yeah. And I liked the moments that um, each of the boys got. Like we got a little more from them than what I was really expecting. Like each boy had their own unique story and a, and their own sort of um, arc and and well you know that the little mormon kid that's that was mitt romney he grew up to be mitt romney oh <laughs> <laughs> it's his, or, it, it's his origin the, like, story uh the title cards at the end yeah, yeah. it said and and also <laughs> introducing young mitt romney but it, but it was it was so cute and it was really sweet and um you know, really don't judge a book by its cover. Um, I love when he hands out his <laughs> the presents from under the tree and it's Oh Marcus Aurelius's <laughs> uh, meditations, and then uh, Mary opens hers, and you can tell from the back that it's meditations again. Oh wow! Do you just give this to everybody? And then at the very end, he's boxing up all he's of his stuff. Him it's up a in giant the box. box of meditations. So yes, he does. Um, but it, it looks like that box was still full, so he hadn't really given it out to a lot of people. So maybe it was. Um, intentional i saw people like i saw people sharing memes of that where it was like i'm going to my secret santa you know work party <laughs> i know what i'm bringing, I know what I'm bringing. <laughs> but it, it was it was wonderful and it also felt really cozy i love i know that it was shot mm -hmm. on digital but like them in post adding the grain and effect of film yeah. um made me miss movies on film and uh, mm -hmm. as someone that handles film in her daily life at work, there's just nothing like it. And so they really went above and beyond to give you an experience much more than just tell a story. Um, so this is, yeah, yeah this is wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's on, like I said, it's on Peacock now, um, but you can also rent it. It's, it, it takes, it ends on new year's. So like perfect time to, if you have yeah. not watched it, perfect. You still got time to watch it. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back with the top five after this. of episode 465 all right we're going from five to one our top five movies of the year michael you got number five 
Yeah, number five was my number one um, of the year. May, December, the new Todd mm-hmm. Haynes movie. Um, Todd Haynes of like Carol and Safe and Velvet Goldmine and um, Dark World. A lot, of, a lot of great movies. Uh, Todd Haynes, like legendary director at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this movie, um, for those who haven't seen it, which is on Netflix, so like unless you're Grace, it's fairly accessible um, to, to watch. Um, is about um, this actress, uh, Natalie Portman, who is going to be portraying um, this woman, um, played by Julianne Moore, who um, became extraordinarily uh, famous momentarily, or uh, infamous, I guess. Infamous, yeah. um, For basically having groomed a, uh, was he 14? How old was he? A seventh grader. Seventh grader, yeah, 13-year-old um and uh groomed him had sex slash i guess statutory raped him and then married him and had his children after um, a prison sentence after having been in prison for it so that's all backstory and uh loosely based on a true story i only found that out recently and oh boy yeah uh and uh so so the 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 present of the movie um is Natalie Portman coming in at a time at which um, it seems like Julianne Moore and um, uh, oh my gosh, um, the other actor, uh, Charles Melton. Thank you. uh, Who plays the adult version of the boy who was preyed upon and then married um, at a time in which their life seems to have settled into something that might be considered uh normal given the circumstances their kids are graduating or one of their daughters is graduating college or high school um or college graduating something um and uh they have all the controversy surrounding them has died down um and like they're still kind of famous for that thing but that thing is far in the past and it seems like they're trying to move on from it uh, and just live their lives. But Natalie Portman coming in is the catalyst that like reopens all of these wounds that were never healed in the first place um, and kind of sends this whole situation spiraling in uh, R and unpredictable and ultimately kind of destructive new directions. And um, I thought this movie was great. This movie was so good. Um, I think we talked about it on another episode of the podcast yeah, we talked about a, it mm-hmm. relatively yeah. recently i can yeah. say, i can say real quickly as somebody who lived in savannah for six years that takes place in savannah yeah a hundred percent a person un- with this scandal could have like been functioning in savannah pre-2020 like would have been somebody who you're like yeah it's the lady who like had sex with the seventh grader and you'd be like what? in the back of the pet store yeah and they'd be like oh yeah, yeah just just don't yeah she's over there and you're just like what like that just checks out that that would be happening. Yeah. I mean, I think this movie is incredible. Like it is mm-hmm. um, a, a movie that is on the one hand, like just a, a tremendous acting showcase, you know, like all mm-hmm. three of the principal leads, you know, Charles Melton, Julian Moore, um, Natalie Portman are all doing like top tier work in like traversing this really touchy material and, and the really particular tone. Sorry, am I? son is crying but he should or daughter's crying he should be okay though um i think everything's all right i'll i may have to step out in a second but anyway uh it's really touchy material and the tone is really tricky of this movie because there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's comedic um 
and comedic in the sense of the movie's posture toward what is happening, not like there's punchlines. Um, and so like these actors are having to play characters who have to have conceivably uh, like conceivable real life, like emotions that we have to take credibly and seriously while also navigating the understanding that this is a ridiculous situation while also navigating the sense that this is a deeply dangerous and like awful situation while also navigating the fact that like all of these characters are lying to each other constantly about like what their motives are and stuff like uh it kind of is an unfolding thing about like what natalie portman's motivations are in this movie and they remain opaque for a lot of the movie you know is she preying upon these people in the same sort of like imbalanced power dynamics that like Julian Moore has taken advantage of. Like at one point she's looking at audition tapes of like all the kids who are going to play the 12 year old or 13 year old. Oh, movie. And she's like talking to the director. She's like, yeah, I don't know. These kids don't seem sexy enough. And um, there's, uh, you know, there's Julian Moore who, you know, seems at first flattered to be presented in a movie by a famous movie star uh, a movie star who's like, I guess, more famous for playing a kind of like seems like yeah. a schlocky like CSI well, kind of show. I don't something. think she's a movie star. I think she's like known for TV. She doesn't even seem like that great of an actress. She's like Natalie commercials. Like Natalie Portman is fantastic as playing a not great actress who's going to be yeah. portraying this character. <laughs> so like, is she like yeah? So like Natalie Portman is. She, you know, is she just trying to get gravitas by taking on this outrageous role yeah. and like kind of exploiting this story? Um, and then Julian Moore is like, you know, her life kind of starts falling apart because of the increased scrutiny from this um, movie's production. Um, but it, it's unclear throughout a lot of the movie of like, how much does she have like an awareness of like the things people think about her and is weaponizing that. Like um, there's the scene in the movie where she discloses, um, you know, um, basically says like, I was abused as a child. Um, and Natalie Portman is like, I'm going to use that in the movie. And then later on in the movie, it, it, the waters get muddied complete or uh, sorry, sorry. It, she doesn't disclose that one of her sons discloses mm -hmm. that. Um, and later on in the movie, she like confronts that, that story about herself in ways that kind of call into question the veracity of it. And like, there's all sorts of movies or move moments like that in this movie where something happens that seems to present a kind of narrative arc that would be kind of like easily encapsized or encapsulated by like an acting performance. And then later on in the movie, it gets complicated by the fact of was that character lying? Do we know their true motivations? Uh, or we learn something new about the background that like, makes that arc um, problematized in ways that like resist this clear cut linear direction to, to understand these characters. Um, and it's in, in some ways like knock at the cabin that I said earlier in which like, this is a movie that like feels totally in control of what it's doing, but is also very slippery and tricky to like lay a finger on like, what exactly are we supposed to be grasping onto? Like the, the moment that this movie ends on is at the graduation. And that is a really uh, fascinating well, scene. It, it no, the, the moment the movie oh, ends on is the filming. Of you're, that. you're right. You're right. You're right. Sorry. Sorry. It ends on the graduation and then has like a kind of epilogue where we see the, the, um, the film crew filming um, the, a scene that's going to be part of the movie. And so this is right after the graduation scene, um, has revealed stuff about like that Natalie Portman basically doesn't know what she's doing um, when doing these characters, and the final scene is her having to take like it's like ten takes 
something that we see of this one line um, where she's trying to, uh, you, you get the sense of trying to get at the core of who Julian Moore's character is. Um, but after this, like, um, the scene that happens at the graduation, um, it, it, it's just really, like us, the viewers, it, it's really difficult to take a human being who has done really awful things and burrow down into, like, what is their truth? Like, as if there is a single like thing that defines this character mm -hmm. and natalie portman seems to have been trying to accomplish something like that to like boil down this character into a truth that she can then kind of depict on screen in like a kind of showy actor way that's going to get her like acclaim and and like you know a serious um uh you know regard by the industry and by the end of the movie it's revealed but that's all just like a like a ponzi scheme in 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 this whole like charade of like you know whatever social respectability slash critical respectability theater has been happening so i guess it's safe to assume that julianne moore did not interview the actual child predator that her character is based on i don't know if that is safe role. to assume well well probably because i think that lady died Oh, she oh, died. She? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I went. On, I went on like a deep dive of like just the whole story with that. Um, Did this also take place in Savannah in real life? No, it was like up oh. in like in like Seattle area, like in somewhere in Washington. Um, no, um, yeah. Well, like she, like they were together for a long time, and they had like two or three kids together, and then they got divorced. Um, and they've been they had been divorced for a while, and she got cancer and died. He said that the yeah. catalyst for the divorce was when the children that they had together became the same age that he was when he was preyed upon. Oh, and yeah. that for him was the eye-opening moment that I was a child, these are my children. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of the end. That was the catalyst. Yeah. So I know more about that story than I do about this, but... Um, you should watch the movie. I should watch you should. Yeah. It is yeah. really good. It's incredible. Um, I feel like Todd Haynes has been recently, like people have taken him, maybe not for granted, but like he's been doing movies that have kind of presented him as like this workman like director, mm -hmm. as opposed to like the kind of uh, really razor's edge. Like he did um, the uh, Wonderstruck uh, and he did Dark mm -hmm. Waters. Um, both of which are really good, I like, but also I like don't name checking Wonderstruck. I forgot that that was a movie that he made. <laughs> it's really good. Like it's it's a terrific yeah. movie, but yeah. it's also a movie that doesn't uh, overtly lay into the sorts of things that Todd Haynes did. Yeah, making a name for himself. That kind of like, um, you know, new mm -hmm. queer cinema that was going on in the nineties. Like, I well, think one so. of the things that he did make a name for himself is be able to kind of shape shift and make different kinds of movies. Right. right? As like, a pastiche artist, almost like he's got far yeah. from, is it far from heaven. What's, what's the Julian Moore? Far from heaven is the surf yeah. riff. And then yeah. uh, I'm not there shows him like depicting uh, Bob Dylan in like a myriad right. of different ways. And I was, I was reading about the making of this movie and they like made it like they had no budget pretty they like they it, he like he talked about that until will ferrell came in <laughs> yeah <laughs> well like, i think will ferrell and julianne moore and natalie portman put like their their stuff behind it but um yeah um he he made it like on like it was one of those they had like a month or two and they like 
filmed it like they like it wasn't like this prolonged thing like they filmed it now maybe not even a month it might have been like like 18 20 days or so. like it was very short like he was talking like i saw an interview and he talked yeah. about it. it reminded him of like his old indie days where he was having to put stuff together there wasn't much you know extra time like everybody kind of had to be locked in um yeah, it's just kind of it's it's kind of crazy that like yeah, yeah Todd Todd Haynes is also struggling to get funding for stuff. Mm-hmm. Give Todd Haynes more money, truly. Yeah, and, and take money. take all the money that you're giving to the Russo brothers for making shit and give it to Kelly Freeman Craig and Todd. Yeah, Dis- Disney, <laughs> your uh, financial prospects have cratered by doing business as usual. We'll just make a Todd Haynes movie. Yeah, <laughs> oh, Todd Haynes directs the Marvels. <laughs> um. Well, May December it's on Netflix. Speaking of movies that it's just it's just nice to see that guy work in. Mm-hmm. Andrew, you got number 4. Our number 4 movie of the year is The Boy and the Heron by Hayao Miyazaki. Um and my first bullet point on my notes here is that there is a new Hayao Miyazaki movie. That is Huzzah. kind of amazing and just like I'm grateful that I'm alive in the time that Miyazaki is alive and making movies. I, at one point I had a long conversation with somebody about like, who is the best living director or like the best currently working living director. And it's hard to think of somebody who's had a a more profound impact on their corner of the film industry than Hayao Miyazaki. That's true. Um, Like, I think maybe unquestionably the greatest animator of all time. Um, you know, if we don't want to compare animation and live action um, cinema. So Miyazaki's back after making a movie that seemed very much like a last movie. The Wind Rises is kind of like mournful and elegiac. Um, and The Boy and the Heron feels like a burst of new energy. It is, it is Miyazaki back in the studio, like with a million ideas and just like wanting to do Ghibli stuff again. Um, so he's, he's kind of drawing on from the same well um, that gave us movies like Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away. Um, so he's, he's kind of twisting these beloved old tropes, but he's doing them in a more patient and assured way. It is, it's like, He's making one of his older movies, but with the the mindset of like an old man who's done this for decades, right? The the way the mystery and the world of this movie unfolds and reveals itself um, is very gradual and um, just kind of like uh, um, I don't know, increasingly um, like amazing. It's like mm-hmm. evoking that feeling of wonder in the audience. I, I saw it at TIFF at the, um, I guess it was the North American premiere. Um, and that was like my main emotion watching it. It was like just wonder and awe of like all of the new stuff that he was putting on screen, new images that I had never seen before. Like just the power of anim- of uh, imagination <laughs> that this man yeah. has is just like unmatched. <laughs> What's and, the what was the what was the the there's three types of Miyazaki movies yes. that we saw at Tiff. Yeah, there's three types of Miyazaki movies. There's one called It's All Magic. Mm-hmm. The second one is if you touch that fucking tree, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> and then number three, I'm horny for planes. Yes. And this is very much the magic one. movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. and you know, this this movie just like has so much 
amazing imagery in it grotesque imagery too like not all of it is like uh beautiful and 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 like fun to look at a lot of it Mostly is actually grotesque quite upsetting to look at yeah, yeah. you it have opens, uh, it opens with a mother burning to death in a hospital so <laughs> oh god in and, and like animated in such a unique way for Miyazaki's yeah. I saw someone say or I heard someone say that it resembles actually something that uh Takahata would have done more so looks than a like, Miyazaki. Yeah, it looks like Princess Kaguya. Yes. Um, that that scene in the middle of Princess Kaguya where she runs out of the palace and like all of the animation turns to scribbles. Um this kind of feels like it's a, a smear of paint. You you're like walking he the character is running through a town that's being firebombed. Uh, Miyazaki himself being a child who survived firebombing when he was very young. Um, and like his figure, like running through the fire is this like really blurry ghost-like image um, that's strange in a Miyazaki film that is, that are so often like, um, you know, built from these like really uh, clean, confident lines. Um, this, this kind of like lets it, uh, blur into abstraction and the way the fire is is animated too it feels more like liquid um, than like fire mm -hmm. um but you know once you get beyond that that prologue of the movie um it's kind of like an alice in wonderland type story with this character um you know continually running into um magical um creatures and and, and new worlds um, and, and a lot of these things are not, again, like um, super fun to look at. It's, it's much more upsetting than most kids' movies would, uh, would tend to be nowadays. Uh, you have the, the titular heron who has like a human head inside of his beak. <laughs> and you first see like a teeth and a nose like poking out of it. And it's like it's not even apparent that it's a nose because it's this bulbous, yeah. enormous yeah. red thing. There's just something gross in there. Um there's also an amazing moment very early on when the heron is squawking in front of the boy that his patience his his presence is requested um in in some uh tower. And while he's saying this, all these fish are like coming out of the water around the heron, like so many fish that you can't really see the surface of the water anymore. And they're all just kind of chanting in unison with these dead eyes, like, join us, join us. <laughs> and the, the kid is being uh, uh, covered with a mountain of frogs that are just like climbing up his body. Um, nuts. <laughs> nuts. Later in the movie, he, um, he like tries to grab what he thinks is like, um, his his long uh, lost mother, but she's oh actually gosh, an illusion, and she kind of like melts away in this really Oof. uniquely animated. He's a bit part. fucked up for that. I was like, damn, Miyazaki. Yeah. <laughs> There's a moment where um, a fish has its organs gutted, and the oh, organs yeah. just kind of like spill <laughs> out and like like making a can, on like and on and on. <laughs> yeah. Um, the movie is also just kind of a, a delightful parade of weird little guys. Um, you know, you have the heron, obviously. Uh, chief weird little guy. The chief titular weird little guy. You got all the, you got the army of parakeets. That's my favorite aspect of the parakeets. movie. Uh, every time <laughs> those parakeets are on screen, I'm laughing. Uh, you also have the Warawaras, um, who were like, that's just printing money at the Ghibli store, <laughs> man. Like so many plushies of those things are getting sold. 
Um, and so, like, I, I love that. I love just, like, Miyazaki making little magical creatures and sharing them with me. Um, there's also a lot to dig into this movie with on a thematic level. Um, it's very autobiographical for Miyazaki. Um, it kind of um, is... Um, it is examining his place in the film industry and he's kind of commenting on the state of the industry by, by my reading of the movie. Um, but more than anything else, it's just like this blast of imagination and uh, it, it honestly puts American children's entertainment to absolute shame. Uh, I think I said on the Artif Dispatch that like it feels like a, a movie that is kind of accusing the rest of the animation industry of like kind of feeling like it's made by AI already. Um, and that's, that's where it's going to go. <laughs> like we're, we're not very far away from that if it's not already happening. Um, and, and this movie seems like a, a plea to the audience, like your personal creativity matters. Like your ideas matter. You can make something new that has never been seen before. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just super grateful that Miyazaki is still around to make movies like this. And I hope he makes many more. Yeah, I have nothing to add. Like, yeah, it's like it was just like a lot of the uh, the most part of the joy that you get out of this movie is just like, hell yeah. Like we got a new Miyazaki movie. This is mm -hmm. awesome. It made it made pretty it did pretty well at the box office. It, number like, one yeah, it was like a number, weekend, right? Yeah, it was number yeah. one. Yeah, number one. It's opening. I saw something recently. It got uh, it made 130 million. Like it's like killing it. Like that's awesome. Yeah. Everybody's like, give me some weird guy Miyazaki time. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's still it's still kind of petering around in the theaters if you have not seen it. But um, G Kids is the distribution company, so it'll probably get a get a blu-ray release soon and pop-up streaming maybe i guess on max with the other ghibli movies mm -hmm. i would assume um but yeah number four uh number three speaking of big names making big movies number three is oppenheimer which was not my number one movie of the year and i was looking through my top movies of the year and i think i'm just a film bro and i'm sad <laughs> that really depressed me a lot yeah actually Nolan, wait, yeah, did you say I it was it was your number one. It was my number one. Okay. I, I though, if I got to, not that it would help my film bro status, but if I could pick the, my number one movie of the year, it'd be watching Heat. Heat. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I fucking love Heat. Oh, I think about Heat every day. I think Christopher Nolan does too. Yeah, like, without and Heat, I there think would be about no her big ass. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing movie. All right, Oppenheimer. No big asses in this one. Unless you want to talk about a big ass there, bomb, yeah. Oh, uh, wow. What's wow. his face? Benny Safdie's character was a big ass. No, Strauss was a big ass. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's um, true. I would say that Florence Pugh has an inappropriate ass in this movie. I didn't need to see Florence Pugh's ass in this movie. You know what? That, like general. I have talked to a lot of people about Oppenheimer, and that has been one of the like prevailing sentiments I've heard from <laughs> just like a variety of people, which was like. I didn't need the sex scenes uh, with Florence Pugh. Yeah, people and are, people are I, weird now. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I like, like I like the Florence Pugh sex scene, if only because yeah. it leads to the hilarious, iconic quote apparently mm -hmm. being generated <laughs> mid-coitus. This than, is yeah. why it's bad. <laughs> no, I think that's so funny. Like, that is the it's a very funny scene. No. Christopher Nolan is not known for being funny, but I, I cannot imagine him coming up with that scene and not thinking it's funny. 
I feel yeah. like that's not a thing to mine for humor if that's what he's doing personally. Wait, what? Like reading reading Sanskrit Having during sex? sex? How yeah. is that not funny? No, like the <laughs> the line that Oppenheimer said about the decimation of countless Japanese people. What? 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 During sex? During sex? He reads the Bhagavad How? Gita during sex. And I comes feel up like with, I, am the I don't understand the why words. what I'm saying is not coming across. Are you saying he was saying that in reference to the Japanese people? He's not saying that in reference no, to the Japanese people. No, in real people. life, he said that in reference yeah. to the Japanese people. But I, in the... I see what you're saying. The, the, the line is like him like reckoning with... Yeah. Like, no, but I mean, I he it's... actually said it, and then putting I mean, that I mean, during a sex scene, you're saying that... Okay, so I am here yeah, to defend this. Like, on, what if he said that right after he nutted? LOL. No, no, but it's before he nuts. Um, but also, no, but also, so I'm here to defend this on a Where do I nut, too. Oh, my God. Which, which is that. Can we not talk about like, this? It, 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 my, my defense of that is that, like, I haven't even so much movie. of this movie is about, like, the <laughs> opaque motivations of J. Robert Oppenheimer and whether or not, like, it is, like, an actual genuine um moral stance that he takes in opposition to hydrogen bomb or whatever when he has in fact lived his entire career building up to the moment where he can then bomb hundreds of thousands of japanese people um and only after he has accomplished that fact does he like start to think about the morals of it um or maybe he was thinking about it beforehand and so like to link um that that is similar to his stance with communism in the movie which is where the sex scene is happening right he's hooking up with a communist who becomes his girlfriend for a little while um, and he, and a there's, there's a way in which you can view her relationship with him as him being tremendously insincere and not thinking about the consequences of what he's doing. Um, because he, as, as is clear from the rest of the movie, doesn't have long-term ambitions within the labor movement, within communism or anything like that. It is like a, a role he steps into um, and, and, and like fulfills certain like, philosophical and personal ambitions in the moment, but that he has no real moral um, impetus to, to follow through with. And so I think like having that line, which is supposed to be this like, oh, wow, what a thinker, you know, coming up with this Sanskrit line, uh, you know, or this Bhagav line from the Bhagavad Gita to express moral ambiguity about or ambivalence about like blowing up people with this bomb. Like, I think it is perfect to, like, come out of that interaction because that's how he treats uh, Florence Pugh's character as well. What movie is this? Agree to disagree. So Oppenheimer is the latest movie from uh, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> we have not introduced it. Oh, um, Oppenheimer. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Wait, have Story we seriously not mentioned what the movie is? <laughs> no, we didn't get to that part. Y'all start yelling about sex scenes. Jesus. Um. It's the story. It's the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, which you know culminates in the dropping of the atomic bomb in Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki. Um, I rewatched this. I got the 4K Blu-ray, and I rewatched this the other day in prep because I'd been wanting to rewatch it for a while. Um, it was also nice to have subtitles on, you know, while while people are are talking in a Christopher Nolan movie. Um, yeah, I stand. I stand by it as it's like definitely in the top of the of the movies for me this year i think so on one level this is like a talking in rooms like a lot of like you know in like a conference room like you know interrogating people like 
it's a very it's not a movie that you would classify as like a three hour blockbuster epic. And so like on just like the filmmaking scale of like this was one of the most successful movies of the year and it does it wouldn't you know, it's very different from like, you know, Guardians three or the latest Mission Impossible. But it was like a blockbuster movie that people like went out in droves to see, which I think is just kind of crazy. Um, Do you think that people went out and saw it just because of the Christopher Nolan name recognition? Like, I think a little bit. And, cause, I think cause a little bit, yeah. It, it being as successful as it... Yeah, I guess yeah. Barbenheimer. But yeah, it being as successful as it was kind of blew my mind. Not because it wouldn't have been successful, but people I never would have imagined being interested in that movie saw that movie. Yeah, I think Christopher Nolan has more pull, like name pull than people think. Like, yeah, I, well, mean, sure. I mean, you, you think... more than almost anybody. Yeah, because I mean, I think I think people, you know, you got like the Batman movies, people will show up for Batman movies. Like, I don't really classify that. But I'm like, you think of like um, Inception, Interstellar, like stuff like that. That's just kind of a little bit that's not, not necessarily like super like mainstream popular also did like really, really well. Um, I don't know, dude, dude, people like Christopher Nolan. Um, but no, on the rewatch, the thing that really struck me, one, the diet the dialogue is kind of funny because on the second watch it's all just it's all just like like uh uh you know prophesizing what we'll get to at the end like it's just like like a, like a lot of the beginning of the movie is just kind of you know foreshadowing to the end which is kind of funny it's not doesn't necessarily detract from the movie for me i wouldn't really nominate it for its script um but uh the thing I was left with is it's it's a movie that like makes me while I'm watching it, especially and then afterwards makes me think a lot. Um, you know, it, like it, like the, 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 the whole, um, the whole dichotomy in the movie where you have, you have Oppenheimer who is the scientist who's thinking like a scientist who like, I'm going to genuinely believe that like probably, knew the ramifications of what he was building but like i like at least how how he's portrayed in this movie is just kind of like like we're doing science this is exciting we're doing we're like pushing the limits of science and like thinking with a science brain of hey we're we're taking what has been built and pushing it further um and yeah i don't think that they're you know i don't necessarily feel like they're constant they're you know always thinking of the ramifications of that i think that you know whatever technological advance has happened in human history it usually is kind of, Hey, this is cool. This is something that could be, you know, really impactful to people, but they don't necessarily, you know, you don't, you know, 20 year, 30 year down the road, think of things about it. Um, you know, whether it's the internet or cars or, you know, there's just a lot of electricity, like a lot of different things. Like you could start there and then move down the line of its history and be like, Oh, it's not in a good place now. Um, but I think that like that's just how they're approaching it, and it's and so like what was interesting to me is do you kind of have like this collision between that approach and then the political approach? Just kind of you know, I I look at World War II as as you know America was doing bad stuff before, but this is what you know World War II kind of put us on the map as like hey we're the head honcho we're number one, so let's like mainstream this this imperialism shit and get going, um, and so it's kind of like the beginning of that because you know they they pretty much. Well, they get Oppenheimer on board because he's interested in, you know, being, you know, being the top science guy. He's, uh, you know, they, they're like, hey, we got the we have your associations with communism that we can hold over your head. And then, um, you know, also, I think 
I think he kind of they, they go as a Jewish person, like, you know, we're going to drop this on the Nazis. And so you kind of have like that, like, all right, like that's and I think that that kind of it breaks into that, you know, the Nazis, you know, we always like to look at the Nazis as like the like prototypical bad guys, like they're the bad guys in this movie. I like how it it kind of moves away from that because they finished the bomb. They're, they're still working on the bomb. The Nazis are done. And that's, you know, that's this whole fight internally in Los Alamos is these scientists going like the Nazis are done. Like, let's wrap it up. And that's just not, that's just not how America is going to roll. You have, you know, you have the, the Matt Damon character as this kind of liaison, the, the general who's the liaison between, between Washington. Um, And like his, uh, you know, his relationship with Oppenheimer is, is kind of, it's kind of sad in a way like they they definitely respect each other and are getting along but like there's times in the movie where it kind of frames it as like you know they're friends and i'm like and you know by the end you're like yeah they're not friends they just work together because at the end you know oppenheimer kind of feels this ownership for this this thing he's created and and it's kind of like no you're just you're dropping that off at america's home and they're going to take it from here like you're not involved anymore um and so it kind of just kind of kills that whole like we're doing this for science because at the end of the day you're producing weapons of mass destruction for a imperialist government um and you know i don't the movie kind of wavers on how to feel about oppenheimer i don't necessarily feel though like it's a it's definitely not a rah rah American movie. Like it's a pretty, it's no. a pretty pessimistic America movie, which I, I I appreciate because I think that's kind of what you have to get into. Um, that's the why scene I, where people are doing the rah rah America thing after they drop the bomb is probably the most um, like nerve rattling. Yeah, oh, where you see all their like skin flaking off and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was pretty. And, and like I, I know one of the. Violence. Yeah, I know one of the complaints was that you don't see many, um, you don't see the Japanese in this movie, which I think is, that's fine. You don't need to see them. Like, that's, this is Well, I think that's pointed, too. Someone like Oppenheimer can only, like, kind of feign, like, objective science when he doesn't have to look in the eye of the people that um, destroy it. He's so selfish. Everything is about him. It's his mind. It's his creation. It's his affair. It's his feelings. And... It, it's all him, uh, everything that he does. I so agree with what you were saying earlier, but like Michael with your, like how uh, the way that he treats other people, um, it's his relationship to communism, not anybody else's. He's such a, he sees himself as so singular and above everyone. And it's so selfish. Yeah. But that's, yeah. that's, that's truly American, right? Yeah. So. American individualism. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like that's 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 a truly American trait right there. Um, Zach, did you ever go and watch? I think I talked about the sign up. Did you ever go and watch the day after Trinity? No, I need to. I need to watch that. I need to watch some of the other. There's really there's other good stuff. I mean, Oppenheimer's is just not a good person. Like like after the bomb, I read I was monster. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. He like like he like he did engage with Japan because they sent him over there because the Japanese were reporting on all of the deaths, not only from the direct hit of the bomb but of the radiation because for months and months and months afterwards, people were dying from radiation and the Matt Damon character, the general and Oppenheimer, like they did this whole, cause America was like trying to uh, quell all of this reporting coming out of, out of Japan. Cause these journalists were writing about like, yeah, like, like people are dying like 
months after this bomb dropped because of the radiation it's killing people and greaves and oppenheimer and all these other americans you know they were trying to hush that whole campaign and went over to japan and were going oh those the, the, those journalists were liars they weren't they weren't telling the truth you know that's just, the reason i brought up the day after trinity because like oppenheimer yeah. was dead by the time a documentary was made but some of the other scientists who went over there talk about their experiences there um and the way that they talk about their trip there is fascinating. Like some of them are like genuinely horrified. Some of them like took souvenirs and stuff. Yeah. I, like, and that's what I kind of just like, I, like, that's why I say like the movie, I just kind of sit there and think during the movie. Cause it's just kind of engaging on all these different levels, less so with like the, like the actual like narrative of the movie and just more of just like, like how, cause like, I don't know, like I get, I get why they were so inspired to do this as scientists. Like you're constantly wanting to push the levels of science and, and like lead to bigger things. Like I understand that. Did it end up being the right thing? No, but like hindsight's 2020, we weren't there and we didn't have that decision in front of us. So we don't know what we would have said to that. Um, And like, it's just, you know, like, it's just kind of, it shows that like, there's not this vacuum, like, like the Los Alamos system, like just in terms of like them doing the science, like, you, you know, the way that he cuts this through this movie, um, like there is kind of this, like, oh, this is really, this is really cool. Like they're work, working together. Um, but then, you know, it's all, it, you know, it's all to build this thing that's just handed off to the U S and that's what makes, um the harry truman scene is just like is just awful because um one harry truman also is just a horrible person he's a president so he's really terrible there's no good president he's he's a president so he's naturally a war criminal but um (laughs) but also just a detestable person um and like that whole sequence i don't know I, i would like to wonder if Oppenheimer said something like that to him. I feel like not. I feel like Oppenheimer was not necessarily wrestling with these, with these things as like dramatically as the movie would like us to believe. Well, and crucially, even in the movie, like he declines to sign on to their letter that uh, all mm-hmm. the other scientists do to not drop the bomb and stuff. Like even in the movie, he shows a lot of reticence to even come out against the bomb when, yeah. he, when other people are already. Yeah. And it's just, you know, and like that stuff and that stuff's great too because it's just like like yeah like that's that's morally a a, a thing that you should do it's not gonna have they're not gonna the american government's not gonna care like they're gonna do what they want and like it's just and it and like what, what i was talking about before with the nazis like the nazis are such the pro like that's the bad guy those are the bad guys those are the people we don't like but it just also shows like the other sides of evil because like you know if you're looking at we're the good guys they're the bad guys well the bad guys were gone and japan was probably going to surrender soon and so that we were dropping the bomb not for not to you know honestly we weren't we weren't dropping the bomb not only to just end world war ii we were dropping the bomb to like you know just as as einstein and him talk about set off the chain reactions for you know for the rest of history um and I don't know, like that's just stuff that just kind of gets noodling around in my head while watching this movie, which also is just wildly entertaining um, and engaging. Um, yeah, so I hope Cillian Murphy beats Bradley Cooper for best actor because Bradley Cooper's a hack and uh, Cillian Murphy's very good in this movie. I want to see Paul Giamatti best actor personally. That'd be good too. <laughs> Surprise, Dave Batista ballot beats everybody. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, on a wholly different uh, Oppenheimer, it's oh. it's you can buy it place <laughs> on a wholly different number. We talk about the number two movie. That's Bottoms, mm-hmm. which you know we were talking about Barbenheimer and Barbie. This is my Barbie. This is my like Bottoms, aces. Um, tops. Yeah. Uh, so this is written and directed by Emma Sleegman, uh, who did uh, Shiva Baby, which is another good one if you've not seen it. It's a nice horror comedy. I don't think it's supposed to be a horror movie, but it's terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah, Bottoms is not that though. Bottoms. <laughs> Um, as I put in my letterbox review after watching it yesterday, Bottoms follows two ugly, untalented gays. <laughs> who, as the as they say over the loudspeaker, they're like, "Will the two ugly, untalented gays please come to the principal's office?" Um, yeah, it's uh, it's Rachel Sonnet and uh, Ao Atabiri, and they are uh, just great characters. They're kind of losers. They're kind of loners. They don't really interact with anybody. People, you know, people just kind of look at them as like, you know, afterthoughts. They're also kind of assholes, which is, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is also what's great about them. Um, and so in order to, they, they, they've been pining after these two cheerleaders and in, in order to, they're like, all right, this is the way that we can get in with these cheerleaders is they start a fight club. Um, and uh, that's pretty much the, you know, the, that's pretty much the movie. Uh, there's a there's a football game that's supposed to happen at the end that where people are gonna die and that we get to that part at the end. But um, <laughs> but yeah, this movie like just it kind of loses a little steam half you know probably a, you know halfway or a little bit more through. But the first like thirty minutes of it, like I was thinking about, is like I need to I need to rewatch this more times because. It's like a Marx Brothers movie. They're just tossing jokes mm-hmm. out left and right. It's so like I can't even keep up with how funny this movie is. There's one part that I didn't realize, but Ao Edebiri, um improvised it, where she's like talking about this interaction they had with the with the hot cheerleaders, and it didn't That's go it. well. And she's talking about how like she's not gonna be like she's gonna have to. Oh, like, you're talking the catastrophizing cool. moment. Yeah. yeah. Oh That's my god. It. I'm packing my pussy up. That's it. I'm marrying the pastor. <laughs> You're marrying the pastor. <laughs> and he's gay too. And we have a son and he knows. Like she, <laughs> she just keeps going. She just, she well, she, and she and she improv she improvised all that. The best part is when That's she says crazy. that and she gets in the car and when she's getting in the car, she goes, Yeah, his sermons are good, but I mean everybody knows he's fruity. <laughs> um no, it's just like like I like because I like that their characters. They're not. This is uh, this uh, when it came out. This was named as like the anti book smart, and it's kind of true because like these characters are such assholes and like terrible a lot of the time that it's like you can't really like totally hit your wagon to them because you're just like man they fucking suck, but they're also really funny and like and you and it, you also have just a cavalcade of like stuff happening in the background that's so fun the background stuff is the funniest the background stuff is the best part like you have the football players the football players are so funny they're wearing their gear the entire their gear they never take it off (laughs) the one that that one football player is having sex with the girl's mom and has his pad still on when they come out of the bedroom which is the hilarious in the cage too the whole time well the one in the cage you see him in like the third scene of the movie and he's just in a cage in the back of class well yeah 
That is such a key moment to show that this movie does not take place in the real world. Oh, like no. not just we're kind of working in like an elevated comedy space, but no, there's like world building happening in this movie. <laughs> this is a parallel universe entirely. The like uh, overt sexualization of the football quarterback by the school promotional material. Oh my god, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. My 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 other favorite takeaway was after they start the Fight Club and Marshawn Lynch, who plays the teacher, who's also incredible, the teacher in charge of the... also Academy also Award. super oh funny. Where's best supporting actor? Yeah, Marshawn Lynch is great, but like like after they start the club, he writes on the board. He writes feminism. What? Uh, who started it? A. Gloria Steinem. B. A man. C. Another woman. <laughs> Dude, the, the recurring gag of his like chalkboards throughout the movie, like um, it's great. At one point, he's assigning bell hooks and stuff, and then he turns like reactionary, like anti-feminist. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh, yeah. Well, that's I what. Like... Then the, the 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 club disbands, and he's like, and he starts like becoming like an incel. <laughs> it's great. Um, so the football players are funny. Marshawn Lynch is funny. Um. You have a random scene with somebody associated with Aoetta uh, uh, Beery's character, who is just like this pot smoker out in the trailer. She's really funny. Um, yeah, it's just it's just great. All like, like honestly, it kind of has like it kind of has like wet hot American summer, like chaos energy. Mm-hmm. But man, this is really good. And like this one bodies Barbie and Booksmart. I didn't realize they were all competing with one another, but this one bodies both of those movies. <laughs> we always have to put women in entertainment in a competition with one another because only one can exist. That's true. That's I, we, They have to duke it out. They have to fight. And yeah. this has the edge. The one girl walks in and she's like, she's like, man, she would be kind of hot if she stopped huffing glue. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just like, I love every, I love every, like every scene in the, also when they walk of- in and they have the F word on their two lockers and Rachel Sonnet's character goes, why am I number two? <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of fighting, we should mention that the fight choreography in the fight sequence at the end of this movie is like shockingly impressive. It's great. Uh, yeah. I thought, no. the, I thought the first fight that gave you sort of a taste of it mm-hmm. um, with um, one of the girls in the fight club and then the like berserker football player that they unleash upon I her. Love <laughs> I loved that. And that was like, he, he, like kicks her head on the ground. Like, it was, I mean, you know, she, I know that at that point, you know, you, you have this feeling where it's like, okay, the, the fight club, they're going to show what they've learned and they're going to fight each other. And instead it's she has to fight a man and like you know it's what a great metaphor for feminism and like oh you know you're always at a disadvantage as a woman having to fight a man and like they won't pull any punches and and she does a good job holding her own like you get the sense that like they were they were really learning and really learning not just how to like fight but like fight back and she's still just beaten down and it's when they all join forces at the end to save the men like they have to go get the one girl and they go listen i know you're a black republican but you're the smartest one here (laughs) they clown her for that so hard and like it's it's so it is it is really funny i my favorite when you when he about speaking of bell hooks i liked when uh kaya gerber's character is like it's like who is bell hooks and why do we care like that was so it's so smart there's so many lines in this movie i like that's why i'm like i need to rewatched it a couple times because there's just so many great like honestly this deserves like a 
like a clueless mm-hmm. mean girls level like cult following where it's being shown all the time like this movie is so damn funny totally. um and like is in the class you know is very much in the class of the honestly it might be better than mean girls because i watched mean girls recently it's a little problematic and now this broadway version of it that's coming out and it's a movie is going to kind of diminish so bottoms number one the top but is it not number two though <laughs> it's number two it's number like one in our bottoms hearts. is number two it's so funny yeah yeah and then you said it was a wholly different movie from Oppenheimer. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, yes. let's, this is, you know, drum rolls. People, you know, people, please, please, you know, simmer down, sit down. Uh, Grace, what is our number one movie of the year? Killers of the Flower Moon. Wow. Scorsese strikes again, that that bastard. <laughs> was it the um, the Irishman? Is that the other yeah. one? That was the yeah, movie? the Irishman was yeah. number one for us three years ago. Is that when that came out? Yeah, I think you're right. So. Masterpiece. Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons, a host of country western music singers, and <laughs> Scorsese himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, this takes our number one spot. Was there ever any doubt? I mean, what else? Yeah, I didn't think this was going to win. <laughs> like, <laughs> really not? I, I, thought, I thought it was going to be Oppenheimer or Boy in the Hair. Oh, fair. well, knowing knowing us and I know our tastes at this point, um, I, I, I'm i not surprised that this is our number one. It does feel um, completely deserved. Yeah, nobody um, had it as their number one movie. That's crazy. Anyway, sorry. Oh, really? It just was on so many ballots that it got... It was pretty much on every ballot. Interesting. Yeah. And and rightfully so. I remember watching the even the first trailer for it and just transfixed by it. I was like, oh my God. And this is just the trailer. And there's a whole three hour movie yet to come. And I I'm so excited. Um this was um so Killers of the Flower Moon, it's based on the novel by David Gran, um, which follows the Osage murders and the um, inception of the FBI. Um, this, uh, we, you guys have talked about it on the podcast before briefly in the part one movies that we watched this week. Um, so it's nice that we get to talk about it a little bit more and give it its number one spot as it highlights um, a story um, a story, a, um, an event, a historical event that I didn't know anything about, not, not, not a lick about, I don't, and I don't feel like I'm alone in that. Yeah. I didn't know anything about the Osage murders. I didn't know anything going into this. Um, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that maybe that also speaks to like our American individualism that we're able to abstract ourselves from events in history. No, 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 that wasn't me. That was so long ago. That was somebody else. Um, and one thing that I really like that this that this movie does, that Scorsese does, is he frames it um, or bookends it um, with two, um, first with a Osage ceremony, and then I, I don't... It could have also been an Osage ceremony, but it seemed to be like a larger, like on a much larger scale, a Native uh, American ceremony so it bookends the story and um frames that this is a story about them um but the controversy surrounding surrounding this movie is that scorsese himself believed that he probably wasn't the right person to tackle that story and i also agree with that um 
I think that I don't think that he would be the person to take it on. Um, I, I I think that um, framing this from the villains of the of of the of the killers is like a is a much better way, and it um, also puts us most of the viewers in the same seat as Ernest and King Hale. Um, look at us at we are greedy we are vicious as americans and this is something that we are all um complicit in yeah it's really interesting i in the movie because like it's not like that's not like the crimes and like the machinations behind the crimes are very hidden you know it's no, not like it's not okay. like it's happening it's not like it's happening in the background and then boom, like we reveal. There's no ever, there's never a reveal because they're just doing it in front of the camera. Robert De Niro lays everything out in like the second scene of the movie or yeah. something. Where he's, he's like, look, Ernest, here's what's going on. And yeah. then the rest like, of the movie is just playing that out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's never like, there's never like a, you know, oh man, like this is what's happening. Like, no, you you know Robert De Niro's like the, the leader of this, you know, heinous, these heinous crimes from like he said, the second scene of the movie. It's, I, I really, I, I was struck my favorite, or one of my favorite sort of images is um, as they're going in the beginning when they're like listing all of the murders as they're happening. And um, it's a it's a hand with a gun um, through a window and it shoots a woman and then outruns the man that did it. And it was sort of like, pull back the curtains, like surprise, it's a white man doing it. Like it, it was, you know, so there was no doubt um, who is committing these crimes? Jesse Plemons. I don't know why you couldn't solve that. You know, I'm here to see about these murders, see who's doing them. But um, the, this this is Scorsese. I mean, I, he is doing what he does best, which is tell a story. But then you also sort of get a sense. Um, there was a line that I sort of latched onto. Again, going back to the very beginning, the the ceremony. The old ways are dying. Um, the old ways of 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 the Osage people are dying. Um, the old ways of film of cinema are dying. Um, this is a theirs is a dying identity and way of life. And uh, the filmmaker uh, is also an endanger is endangered at this point in cinema history as well. Um, but at the same time, there's that like fascinating epilogue too, where it's like the radio drama where yes. Scorsese is basically saying like. This movie's not going to do shit. In fact, I'm just here telling a story just the same as everyone else told these stories, but nothing's going to change about it. Like, I don't know. There's something like interestingly brutal and self-critical about that ending, too. Absolutely. Yeah, there was I, I've seen a lot of conversation around it where people have taken um, like are unhappy with the fact that Scorsese is directing the story compared to a Osage filmmaker or just a native filmmaker in general. Um, I, there was a really interesting discussion about it on the film comment best of the year episode where uh, one of the panelists was kind of going like, I like this movie. I think it's very good, but like I didn't include it on my top 20 list and things like that because they, they just, just you know they feel like this wasn't his story to tell and even though it like was technically proficient they were gonna wait to reevaluate it after a uh you know a osage or native filmmaker got to make like their version of the story and then amy tobin who uh 
God love her. There's a great story about Cinematary with her if you ever want to hear it. But um, uh, she she comes in and she right I, at least I agree is is correct in her thing, which she goes, no, that's I think that that's off base. Like you, you could definitely have a version of this that focus on focuses on the Osage people, but like the reason. The, the the core of this movie is what you're describing grace is these is the the white men coming in and creating and just outwardly doing crime as this kind of parable this american parable of you know how capitalism takes in the the people with with less power yeah. um and you could probably encompass that in a you know not to say that a, a native filmmaker couldn't do that um but like this is also the master at that at, at like capturing those types of stories doing that. And I feel like that's part of the, the part of that's part of the movie. Why Robert De Niro's character and Leonardo DiCaprio's character and stuff like that are, are the main focus. I would um, also point out um, like one thing that Scorsese has done throughout his career is really try to highlight like um, non-white um, filmmaking, like oh, yeah. filmmaking by non-white directors. And I get the sense with this epilogue um, and this movie in general and just the state of film that that must feel like a Sisyphean task. Uh, there's a movie that has not been picked up for distribution um, called Fancy Dance that is about um, oh. like the kind of contemporary uh, disappearances and like killings of like Native women um, in the United States and in the reservations. Um and I was actually listening to uh, a, uh, a podcast where they interviewed Lily Gladstone, who is a uh, in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, and this could have been potentially like a double billing with Killers of the Flower Moon kind of showing history and pa like past and present, like on different sides of the same coin with regards to like uh, native peoples being killed. Um, but nobody in the industry is going to touch this movie, um, even though it won like festival awards and stuff. Um, and I don't know if that's changed since this podcast came out. This podcast uh, several months ago, but um, they were pointedly saying that, like, you know, for whatever the good intentions of someone like Martin Scorsese might be, um, or of someone who wants to say, like, we should let an indigenous director tell these stories. Indigenous directors are telling these stories, and they're not being seen because they're being like, uh, you know, actively ignored, uh, even. Yeah you get the the off chance that they do get the opportunity which is vanishingly rare um so like i don't know there's something really interesting and and depressing about like martin scorsese you know it does does is is like the only person who could tell this story not because he's the only person who should but because of the mechanics of like yeah. the kind of white supremacist capitalist movie industry yeah um yeah andrew what did you think of the movie um, I really liked it as well. It was not on my list, but that was not because I, I dislike Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, to tell the truth, it's a movie that I want to rewatch yeah, uh, before I like fully know how I feel about it, just because of the context of me watching it. Um, the week I saw it, I actually saw it with Michael. I was struggling with insomnia, and so I was kind of like drifting in and out of consciousness while watching the movie. And so I feel like I don't have a super clear picture of it in my head. Um, I know the broad strokes, right? It, but it's a it's, lot though. It's a three and a half hour, yeah. um, like trudge through a lot of suffering. 
Um, and so I was just not in the headspace to watch it. I actually tried to rewatch it today for this podcast. And um, I saw that, you know, this movie was an Apple TV plus movie. And when we, when we saw it in theaters, there was actually a little uh, bumper at the beginning of the movie of Martin Scorsese thanking the audience for watching the movie in a theater, because he knows that like, you know, as Grace said, film is kind of like a dying art form or at least an art form that's kind of taking a new shape and um scorsese is like with this and the irishman sort of resigned to making movies for the streamers and so i was like okay this is on apple tv plus i have apple tv plus i'm gonna pull it up and watch today apple tv plus makes you rent this movie for twenty dollars to rent it you do not own a fake ass digital copy of the movie you have access to it for like 24 hours for 20 dollars that sucks yeah i hope i hope the criterion collection does like they did with irishman and gets Mm -hmm. this on like a gets a physical release of this because yeah like it's gonna get lost in apple tv plus Mm -hmm. but um what is the uh cinematary amy talbin story oh so one year (laughs) So one year I invited her to come on one of our young critics episodes and Amy Talbin's like been around the block. She's, 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 she's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, very curmudgeon. would have been a fun podcast. So I like send her like the email. I generally send the people going, Hey, like, you know, we would like you to, to be on this episode, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and she replied with, um, I am, uh, I am not uh, a young critic. <laughs> very much, like, I'm not a young critic. I'm very much an old one. So it would make no sense for me to be on this podcast. <laughs> and I, you know, I could have responded with no, no, like, like we're the young, like that's, that's the, that's the, di- that's what's going on here. That's the dynamic. Um, but I just like that answer. So I just left it as is. How <laughs> to be an old critic, please. Yeah. She was just like, I am not a young critic. I was like, well, I mean, yeah. Um, no. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I'm i with you kind of, Andrew. I need to rewatch this movie because it's a lot. And it's, it is like just a lot happening over the course of three and a half hours. And I feel like kind of sitting and being able to really focus would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I'm good with it being number one. I think it'll, like I had it number five. I think it would crawl up my list if I saw it again. Um, All right. Well, let's wrap up real quick. Uh, We're pushing two hours, so we're going to go through this quickly. Um, But everybody, if you want to go around and do your honorable mentions, um, I can kick us off. Uh, I had a couple just on my top 10 that like I would like to highlight. If you're able to see the delinquents, I saw that at TIFF. It came out in October. Super good movie from uh, Argentina. Yeah, heist movie. Really, really fun. Um, I also, Zone of Interest should be coming out more wider, the new Jonathan Glazer movie. Andrew had that on his list too because we Mm -hmm. saw that at TIFF. Um, Check that out. The two honorable mentions I had, one as just like a counter-programming blockbuster that was really fun that I wish, I think it had a better life on streaming than in theaters. But Dungeons and Dragons, Honor mm. Among Thieves, really fun movie. I'm not a Dungeons and Dragons person, um, so I can't speak to like the uh, how it lines up with the gameplay or anything like that. But Chris Pine, hella charming, um, and it's by the Game Night guys. Yeah, it's by the guys who did Game Night. It has some energy to it. I don't know. It's really good. Hugh Grant is the villain. He's doing some stuff that's fun. I don't know. It's a very. It's on. It's on Paramount Plus, and I think Amazon Prime right now. 
um check it out it's it's well worth your two hours like it's a good little i, I found it really entertaining the other one we talked about the wes anderson roll doll shorts that are on netflix earlier i put that mm-hmm. as my honorable mention those were those are all fantastic if you have not watched those um you could probably sit there and watch all of them in about an hour and a half yeah um but yeah if you have not checked those out please do um grace what about you uh, my two honorable mentions were sofia coppola's priscilla um, I really enjoyed that talk about um, grooming May, December grooming again and Priscilla. Um, I adored it. I have my fun story, movie theater, you know, go see a movie in theater, talk to somebody next to you in the theater. Maybe they're friendly, maybe they're not. Um, but uh, I met a wonderful woman who's a huge Elvis fan and she loved the Baz Luhrmann Elvis and she also loved this. So she can hold the two stories and the two truths in her heart. And so can we, um, but also um, Priscilla was just um, really fun to watch as a Memphian. Uh, when she walks into high school, I was like, that's immaculate conception. I know where that is. I know that high school, I have friends that went there. So I just felt close to that. And my other was um, Brandon Cronenberg's uh, infinity pool. That was scary, guys. I like that. Um, <laughs> ooh, the um, it was scary and sexy. Killing of your of your ego, your id, and your super ego all in one go, and then just being forced to go back to the real world. Um, all of that happens on a couple's vacation on a on a on a retreat, and um, then to go back into the real world to the real life, like you didn't just commit murder in such a weird and twisted way and go back to the real life. So uh, just like watching a movie, watch something weird, and then you walk out into the real world. So mm-hmm. uh, Michael, I also had infinity pool, um, which was scary. I, I agree is a little bit freaky, but also very funny um, at times. Uh, Mia goth is in it and she's very funny um, because most of the time she is um, just uh tormenting the main character um there's this one sequence he's like a failed novelist basically um uh, and there's one this one sequence in particular when she's like chasing him in a car uh and she's reading to him critics pans of his novels and like (laughs) screaming at him like it's it's very funny um but also the other things that um grace said uh, and the other one that i did um just because i thought this movie needed some more attention because i don't think i've seen i've seen nobody talk about this movie and barely any at the time it came out is uh, the starling girl which kind of came and went as your kind of like indie art house thing um but i liked it um it a lot it's uh one of the better uh cinematic depictions i've ever seen of like um american like religious fundamentalism specifically with like um that kind of like christian fundamentalist like independent baptist style like stuff um going on in like a rural area um and it's about this girl um who just wants to do this little like worship dance and things kind of spiral out of control with her youth pastor and she eventually you know has to like run away and stuff and um it's really it's really good um kind of naturalistic sensitive um indie drama that deals with a milieu that is often referenced but very seldom done correctly and i thought it really nailed like what it was trying to evoke there so it's good yeah andrew um i want to shout out saint omer by mm-hmm. alice diop um good too it's a uh, courtroom drama unlike any other courtroom drama you'll ever see um it is very much like a 
you know, European art house movie. It's like austere and quiet and slow, but um, it is um, kind of spiritual in a way. Like there's, you can kind of tell there's something going on in the story that you're not seeing. There's, there's like another layer to it. Um, I also want to flag up a movie I may or may not have given an honorable mention last year, and that is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Yeah, um, that that kind of got lost in the shuffle. It was my favorite movie of TIFF in 2022, and then it kind of got a 2023 January release, and so it's sort of been forgotten. But that's a fantastic heist it's on thriller. It's on Hulu now. It's on Hulu. Go watch it. Um, yeah, I co-signed that. Step a movie that I um, had really mixed feelings on on release, and I still have mixed feelings on it, but I, I ended up putting it on my list is a Skinamarink, uh, because oh, I just yeah. don't think that I've seen a horror movie take quite as wide of a swing as Skinamarink does, maybe ever. Um, it is really trying to evoke horror in a completely new way, and um, I have thought about it. Um, more often than I would like um, walking around in my house in the middle of the night. So um, if you want to similarly be afraid of the dark, um, you can watch uh, Skinamarink to to get that experience. I would be um, really curious how that plays outside of a theater because um, mm, it really requires rapt attention. Right. You could watch it like on your laptop in your bedroom in the middle of the night and that would probably be quite scary. That yeah. would be scary. You're right. Yeah. Watch it on your couch. Oh, <laughs> what's that? Who's there? I'm excited to see what that director does next. I hope it's um, it's a little more refined than, than what Skinamarink is doing. But this feels like kind of the bleeding edge version. I think it. they're doing uh, Iron Man 4. Are you serious? No. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this person has like an A24 deal now. So we'll see you soon. Yeah. Yeah, those are my honorable mentions. Cats. Cool. All right. Well, that will wrap up the year for us. Um, mm -hmm. We'll be, we're, we're going to be, we're actually ending this recording. We're recording on New Year's Day uh, and we're going to be talking, we're going to be figuring out series for the next year. So uh, uh, I don't have any series for you right now, but uh, in two weeks, you'll check out your podcasting app and you'll see a series and it'll be great. So, <laughs> um, Thank you all for listening over the course of 2023. We look forward to great film views and discussions in 2024. And we will see you in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>